Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and welcome to Speak Up. My name is Nadia, and I'm joining you today from the lands of the Wandari Woi Wurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Kelly Williams. Kelly and I make up two thirds of the ethics team at National Office, so it won't come as a surprise that we're talking about ethics today. We're going to start by talking about a project that Kelly has been working on, and then move into an interview with some practical applications from Alicia, who has done some of this research. Hi, Kelly, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Nadia. And I'm also joining today from the lands of the Wandari Woi Wurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. So Kelly, over the last 18 months or so, you've been working on a project which is kind of helping to pull together a special edition of one of SPAR's main publications, the Journal of Clinical Practice in Speech Language Pathology or JCPSLP. Can you tell us a bit about how that started? Yeah, sure. So in back in 2015, the SPA Ethics Board released a special ethics edition of the JCP SLP, and they decided that for 2023, they wanted to release a second edition. So the aim of this ethics special edition is for the ethics board to share education and resources to support members of Speech Pathology Australia to enhance their ethical decision making and help develop and expand their ethical thinking. And we want to say a really big thank you to the current editors of the JCP SLP, Dr. Andy Smith and Dr. Katrina Blythe, for making space to allow for this publication. So my role as the project officer was firstly to identify what content would be relevant and useful for our members and then help to pull it all together. Yeah, great. Can you tell us about some of the themes that are covered and, and what some of that process of identifying that content looked like? Yeah, so as we know, there's been lots of changes in our clinical practice and the general outlook of our profession in a relatively short space of time since 2015. And so it was important that the content in this journal was responsive to member need and reflective of contemporary issues. So what I did was I looked at the, con the contacts that we have in the ethics team with Speech Pathology Australian members and with the general public since 2015. And I, I looked at it to identify what the main themes and topics were that people have wanted to discuss in more depth. And just for example, the last year alone, the ethics team had over 500 direct contacts with our members and with the general public who were seeking more informational support. And so we were able to draw on these conversations to help shape the content for this edition. So I identified that the top five themes and topics that the ethics team have been talking about from 2015 to 2022 were, the first one was professionalism, second one was consent, third one was confidentiality, fourth one was safety, and the fifth one was advertising. And I also found a significant rise in the last two or three years on the number of contacts who wanted to discuss conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. So then we also looked at the main themes in the formal complaints received by the ethics board during the same time. And we found that there was an overlap within the themes of proactive contacts with the ethics team and also within the formal complaints received by the association. 
In addition to that, the Ethics Board were also really keen to have a student voice and student perspective represented in the journal. And so last year we launched a student essay competition on the topic of the differences in the ethical responsibilities of allied health assistants versus qualified speech pathologists. And we're delighted that the winning paper of this competition will also be included in this edition. And I wanna take this opportunity to say a big thank you to everyone that contributed and supported the development of this ethics, second ethics edition. And we're really excited about its publication, which is coming up very soon, this July, 2023. What was the student's name? That's really cool that they're in there. Yeah, so the, the winner of the competition was a student called Michaela Paul. And we will be hearing more from Michaela as part of the student e-news. So that would be really interesting to have a chat with her about yeah. her essay. Congratulations, Michaela. That's awesome. So Kelly, you said the top five themes, and I think the first one was professionalism. Can you just give us a bit of an idea of what a contact to the ethics team looks like if we are classifying it as professionalism? Yeah, so it is a really broad term. And yeah. within that, we break it down into all of the various different types of what that might encompass. So that's going to include professional communication. So an example of that might be how to see services appropriately and professionally with a client, professional mm -hmm. conduct, for example, you know, how you're liaising with your colleagues or your use of social media, ensuring that that is maintaining professional standards. It might be about professional integrity. So, you know, following through on something that you say that you're going to, to do and being accountable for that. And it might be professional standards as well. So upholding the kind of quality of the work in our profession. So yeah, it's a broad term and it can mean yeah. various types of of, of things like that. And obviously there are lots of discussions that we have with different members about all those different types of things. Sounds good. Can you tell me some of the things that you're hoping speech pathologists will be able to action right away when they're reading this special edition of the journal? Yeah, so firstly, on the topic of consent, we have a fantastic paper on supported decision-making for people with complex communi communication needs from Alicia Gorman, and we'll be hearing from Alicia later on in this podcast. And we were also really pleased to secure an interview with Dr. Laura Lundy, a leading researcher and lawyer in the field of children's rights and elevating the voice of the child, and she's based in Ireland. Dr. Laura Lundy kindly gave us permission after the interview to share the audio with our members. And so as well as reading the article, you can also listen to that interview within the edition. Ooh. Dr. Lynn, yeah, yeah, really cool. And Dr. Lindy McAllister has put together a fantastic column summarizing Dr. Lundy's framework and telling us all about that. And then she also invited Dr. Jenna Gillett-Swan, an associate professor and researcher and educator, and also Dr. Claire Carroll, a speech and language therapist and lecturer at the University of Galway in Ireland, to share their thoughts on the how they practically apply this framework in both the speech pathology and education spaces. So lots to consider there on the inclusion of our clients in our clinical practice. And I'm excited to see how this area of practice evolves from here. Next, on the topic of safety, I'm really looking forward to reading a column jointly authored by Tara Lewis, SPA's Senior Advisor for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Strategy and Practice, 
Anne Nicole McGill, who is SPA's Senior Advisor on Evidence-Based Practice. And that column is going to explore past and recent research principles when working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Furthermore, on this topic, Dr. Beth Armstrong, along with members of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Committee, have kindly agreed to review the First Languages Australia website and the resources on that website for our members. And that's part of the research column. The next few papers have been written by current and past members of the Ethics Board. So on the topic of professionalism, we have a paper discussing the implications of stress on professionalism and professional communication, and it explores practical ways that our members can be proactive about looking after themselves and to maintain a high standard in professionalism and their communication with their clients. On the topic of advertising and confidentiality, we have a case study exploring ethics and the use of social media. And we also have a paper exploring the ethical considerations for speech pathologists who work in independent practice when they're working with clients who use public funding. So that's a really interesting read as well. And a paper on the ethics education course, which was launched last October 2022. We're also going to hear from the consumer representatives on the ethics board in an interview where they share more about their unique perspectives on our profession and how speech and language pathologists can work in partnership with consumers. That was a really interesting discussion that explored person-centered practice. And on the topic of conflicts of interest, our top 10 tips to avoid them has been put together by Dr. Arthur Rallis, a lawyer with a medical background. And so I'm sure that column will be really useful for our members too. Sounds great. When does the journal come out? Yeah, it's, it's coming out this July 2023, and its title is going to be Ethical Practice in Speech Language Pathology. Fabulous. And so you recently spoke to Alicia, who's one of the authors of one of these papers. Is that right? Yeah, yep. And Alicia shared with me more about the content of her paper, and we explored some of the kind of technical terms within that paper as well. And this was really interesting because it really fits in with the topic of consent. And this is something that our members have been, you know, wanting to discuss more. And so it was great to kind of hear her thoughts because she's doing her PhD in this area. So, and so now we're really delighted to hear more from Alicia Gorman on her paper about supported decision-making with people with complex communication needs. Alicia launched into speech pathology in 2006 after graduating from Curtin University in Western Australia and has loved working as a speech pathologist ever since. She's especially passionate about human rights and communication. Her interest is in supported decision-making and that was sparked during her time working in the UK and applying the Mental Capacity Act 2005. Alicia has a special interest in AAC, literacy development and working with people with complex communication needs. Alicia now works in her private practice, Yo Unique Therapy, with a small team of amazing therapists. She's now back at Curtin University, completing a PhD, exploring, exploring how people with disability and their supporters can develop decision-making capabilities. A very warm welcome to you, Alicia. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land I'm speaking from today, the Wajak people of Noongabulja. 
So Alicia, you have submitted a paper to our JCP SLP Special Ethics Edition. We're so excited that you, you wanted to share your article with our, our special edition. And the title of your paper is, But What Do They Want? Communication and Supported Decision-Making for People with Complex Communication Needs, Ethical Considerations for Speech and Language Pathologists. So to start us off on our conversation today, I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about your background and the journey that led you to wanting to complete a PhD on the topic of supported decision-making for people with complex communication needs. Yeah, sure. Well, it started when I worked as a speech pathologist in the UK and I worked on a team with different allied health professionals, occupational therapists, physios, nurses, social work, and we visited people with learning disabilities in the community. At that time, the Mental Capacity Act had just sort of come in and there was a requirement that before we provided services to the people that we were seeing, they had to provide consent that they were happy to receive you know, whichever service it was, if it was physio, speech or occupational therapy. So some of the people that we worked with used spoken words and they could tell us if they were happy to receive the service. And then there was other people who didn't use words to speak and they had complex communication needs. And I noticed that it was, it was a bit of a challenge for everyone to know what to do or how we could seek consent from those people. And, you know, I think that in some cases, you know, that some people thought, well, maybe consent is implied if they, they didn't leave the room. And I was really lucky. I had a wonderful supervisor who let me try out some different communication tools and methods and see how you know we could potentially improve this process as a team of how we might seek consent for people who didn't use spoken words or had complex communication needs. Great wow so how great to, to experience it you know on on the ground and then you know, obviously that sparked an interest for you and led you to want to delve deeper with your, your PhD. Yeah, and then when I returned to Australia, I worked at a bigger organisation and in private practice and I guess supported decision-making became something that I was really interested in and was really relevant in lots of people's lives who I was working with. I predominantly work with people who have a, who have a disability and yeah, I just have found it a really interesting and really important area and it's been exciting to try out different different tools and different methods that work for all different people. Yeah, yeah, it's really something that is something needs to be individualised to all the people that you work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you explain to us a little bit more about what you mean by supported decision-making? Yeah, well, firstly... I thought it was good to consider the different types of decisions that we're sort of thinking about or talking about because we make so many decisions all the time and we don't really necessarily always think about how many decisions we're making. So like what you're going to eat or what time you're going to wake up or if you're going to have a tea or a coffee. So these are sort of the daily decisions. And then there's decisions that have a bigger impact on your life, like where you are going to live, who you want to spend time with, 
where you want to work, if you want to enrol in a course or what recreational activities that you might choose to do. And so decision-making can be viewed on a continuum. So at one end, we could think about autonomous decision-making where a person might seek advice or they do some research and they weigh up all the options and the pros and cons and what might happen, but ultimately that person makes the decision. And then at the opposite end of the continuum, we have substitute decision-making where another person makes a decision on behalf of someone. The substitute decision-maker considers usually what's in the person's best interest when they're making the decision. And then in the middle, between autonomous and substitute decision-making, we've got supported decision-making. Supported decision-making is a system where the person is at the centre of the decision-making process. They receive the support either by a person or a team of people to make a decision. And the supporters ideally are known, know the person really well and they understand their character and their history and their preferences. And they provide support by giving information in an accessible way to weigh up the options and the pros and cons and assist the person to consider all their options and the possible outcomes. If we think about the different types of decisions, so we've got, you know, daily decisions and then decisions that might have a bigger impact on your life. So some people might be able to make some decisions autonomously and then other decisions, they might need a supportive decision-making system in place because it's important to remember that when we view someone, it, it's not like we say, oh, that person doesn't have capacity or it's, it's really that a decision is capacity-specific and the kinds of support that a person needs is dependent on the decision itself. So some decisions require supported decision-making and others, you know, may not. Okay, so it really sounds that you need to know this person quite well, you know, and, and that there's going to be a flow between maybe how much support you might need. So in some circumstances, they might need more support and in other circumstances, they might need less support. And that's obviously going to change for every different person or client that you're working with. Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. I'm interested to know who can be a supported decision maker. Yeah, so like a supporter can be, it could be a parent, guardian, friend, support worker, support coordinator, allied health professional. Yeah, it can be a range of of different people. And, you know, my experience has also shown me that sometimes what the decision at hand to be made might be will influence maybe who are the best people to be involved as a supporter for that person too. Okay yeah so that's going to be something important to consider as well and maybe talking to that person about who's best to support you with this particular topic or area. I think supported decision making can be is can be really complex as well it needs to be quite individualized and obviously there's a lot of variability in the kinds of decisions and the kinds of support that are needed as well. Yeah. And would it be fair to say as well that that may change or fluctuate depending on, on a different day as well? Would that be something that you might need to consider? Yes. Yeah. And I think that there's certainly, you know, some people who 
you know, there's particular times or periods where decision-making might be easier for them and other times where it could present more challenging. And obviously if there's a, a supporter or supporters who know them well and can understand those variations, then they can provide, you know, the right support for them too. Thanks, Alicia. Which leads me on to my next question. What role can a speech pathologist have within supported decision-making? I think speech language therapists have a really important role to play because we work with people who may have difficulty making decisions and they might need supported decision-making. I think there's three main factors to consider in terms of our role as speech therapists. Firstly, it's about the person and their communication. So the supporters, they really need to understand how the person communicates their preferences. How do we know when they like something, when they don't like something, or when they're confused or unsure? We also need to have an understanding of what assists them to understand information. Is it, you know, being in the context or having some the experience or photos, videos, picture symbols? But this is important to ensure like when supporters are providing information so that it's accessible to each individual's needs. Secondly, a person may benefit from AAC in place, especially people with complex communication needs. AAC can provide a clearer means for the person to express their opinions, but also for other communicative functions, which might happen when you're making decisions or in a decision-making process. For example, if you want to ask a question or you want to request some time to think about the decision or you want to talk about this decision with your friend before you decide, having a robust communication system and knowing how to use those functions can be really helpful. And then finally, Speech language therapists may provide information and upskill the person and their supporters about what good supported decision-making practice might look like. So exploring opportunities for that person to make decisions and and supporting the skills they might need to engage in more decision-making as well as the skills that supporters need, like listening, responding, and in some cases helping them to actually carry out that decision you know, perhaps more in an advocacy role as well. Wow. So lots of ways that a speech and language pathologist can be supporting and inputting into this, into supported decision-making. Yes, I think that it's really valuable to work as a team and, you know, everyone can have, you know, different contributions and thoughts about how you can go about this process too. Yeah. Yeah, so lots of lots of opportunities for collaboration there. Um, thanks, Alicia. Thanks for explaining those parts to all about the supported decision making for us. I want to come on to talk a little bit more about your paper in particular. Now, I really enjoyed reading your paper. Thank I found you. it. I found it so practical and accessible with my background of being speech and language pathologist. And I really enjoyed that you used a case study throughout your paper to illustrate and explore important ethical principles. It really makes it relatable to as a clinician. And I was really interested to read about the, the tool that you use throughout your case example, which is called ethical mindfulness. 
So I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about what is ethical mindfulness and why might it be a helpful model for clinicians to use? The process of achieving ethical mindfulness is from Guillermine and Gillam's narrative analysis and everyday ethics in healthcare. I thought this was something that really resonated with me as a clinician because sometimes when I thought about ethics when working as a speech language pathologist my mind would go to ethical dilemmas or big complex situations and things that require big discussions and team meetings and lots of problem solving strategies when in actual fact ethical considerations appear in our daily interactions as a clinician it's it it really went through four main elements of the process of going through ethical mindfulness so the first one is just when you're in an interaction if noticing any uncomfortable feelings or unease and asking yourself why so it might be something clinical that might you know might make everybody or make make you feel a bit awkward or it, the discomfort might actually relate to an ethical issue and I guess that's the first step is just noticing oh you know I feel a bit awkward about that or that seems a bit uncomfortable and kind of thinking about why why you felt that way and then secondly describing if it's an ethical situation and thinking about why that perhaps made you feel a bit uncomfortable then the third step is being reflexive and aware of what your role is and what your views and perspectives are and, and then thinking about the perspectives of the other people who might have been involved in the in the moment and then finally embracing courage which sometimes is to challenge the norm and respond to the situation in the, in the means that you feel is the most appropriate way and I thought that this process of how we develop ethical mindfulness on a kind of a daily basis and taking note of those moments can really help us reflect as a, a clinician and on our own practice, but and ultimately, you know, can hopefully improve the outcomes that we're seeing for the clients and the different people that we're working with. I love how this, you know, there's a fright, this framework kind of connects into that to allow you or give you that permission to go deeper and think, oh, why is that discomfort there? What's kind of making me stop? Yeah. And it can be just a moment of, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Or, hmm, I'm not sure how to respond to this person when they've just said this. Or, you know, it's yeah. just those those really small moments. And I think that, uh, you know, it's very relatable to think about that. You do have lots of moments, you know, during the day when you're seeing lots of different clients and families, you know, that it it's beneficial to kind of think about them yeah definitely a bit more deeper and I think also it's you know you might not sort of go through that whole process on the spot and you might sort of take it away after the appointment or the session and think about you know what happened or how you might address it or consider things differently for next time right yeah definitely you're not going to have space all of the time to think about it on the spot and sometimes you might find that there's just something that's kind of just sitting with you that you think, you know, I'm thinking about that particular thing or happened or that moment. And so that 
maybe you know this framework's an opportunity there to kind of think okay I'm gonna gonna take some time to think about that moment that I keep keeps cropping up for me yes yeah that's right Okay, let's, I want to kind of move on now to talk a little bit more about consent. And I'm just interested to hear from you, Alicia, how does Porter's decision-making differ from consent? Informed consent is usually when you've read some information about the terms and conditions of what's written in the document and you've understood them and then you traditionally would sign that at the end. Whereas supported decision-making is where a person receives the individualised support from a person or people who know them well to make a decision. So supported decision-making isn't necessarily just asking yes or no questions or just about consent, but encompasses lots of different decisions. I mean, it can definitely be used as a means for a person to provide consent, perhaps if they had like an accessible way of understanding the terms and conditions that are outlined in an informed consent document, then, you know, supported decision-making could be used there. Okay, yeah. So I think that's that's really important to explore that, how the the supported decision-making might be happening throughout the day. That does differ from what we call informed consent, which is something, you know, legal and professional and, and lawful that you may need to obtain from someone in order to get their permission to proceed with a certain assessment or a certain treatment. And as you say, that usually then you would it would be something written. You would document that you've got that informed consent. What are important factors to consider when seeking consent from people with complex communication needs? Well, informed consent is when you have given all the information to someone about the service and they've understood the, all the terms and conditions they've agreed and signed to confirm their consent. Like you said, it's a legal consent. So consent can be obtained if all that information is presented to a person, they've understood it all, and then they sign it. Alternatively, if the terms and conditions for that service or the information is very abstract and you're not confident that the person understands, you may require consent from a substitute decision maker or a guardian or support person. However, you can still seek assent from the person to respect their autonomy and if they agree to, you know, engage in the service. So it's not, assent is really an active agreement of participating or engaging it isn't quite as simple as saying like hey is it okay if I'm here and the person sort of saying oh okay it's giving them enough information that they actively agree so it might be explaining who you are why you're there you might use some props or tools or communication symbols or a an, perhaps an accessible plain English information letter to explain why you're there and what you're doing and I think it's also nice to include, you know, it's okay to say yes, it's okay to say no, it's okay to say I don't know, and giving the person the option of, you know, you don't have to say yes to this. Some people may not be comfortable necessarily always to say no and might feel that they have to agree. So I think that in an assent process that it's 
really trying to individualise the information that the person is actively agreeing and saying, yes, this is okay, I'm okay with this. Okay. So would it be fair to say, like on a, on a very simple basis, that assent is about gaining someone's agreement or approval for something after they've thought about it or considered it? And consent is more about gaining someone's permission to do something. Would that be kind of a way to kind of think about the differences there? I think consent has a lot more information involved, like informed consent. There's a lot more information about, you know, for example, if it was a service agreement, you might have cancellation policies or what the rates of pay are, or you might include information about you know policies and things like that that pertain to the service agreement whereas assent is sort of you know you know I might be observing you while you're at home is it okay for me to be here right now and we might write some notes yeah. so it might have I guess assent might have less information that is provided but is giving enough information that the person knows who you are, what you're doing, and if they are yeah. agreeing to, to participate or giving you permission as well to be there. Yeah. So assent might be something that you're collecting client throughout your clinical day, maybe in various different ways that you're working by checking yes. in with that person. Yeah. Okay. And I think, you know, something else to, to mention here is that sense really important when you're working with people under the legal age of decision making so children and that's something that speech and language pathologists can be gaining from children when they're working with them and involving them and talking to them about their input into the therapeutic process as well yes yeah absolutely and I also just want to mention here you know we're talking about important factors to consider when seeking consent um, from people with complex communication needs but considering the people for whom English is not their first language mm -hmm. so you know we might need to make some adjustments there and thinking about the language that we use as well so you know not using any jargon or speech pathology terms that that language is easily accessible for the community and the individual that we're, we're interacting with considering their health literacy and their mental health state as well. And, you know, the communication needs, you know, have they their glasses on? Have they got their hearing aids working? And, you know, for people who use sign language, using an interpreter for kind of key important moments that they might need in their, you know, to, to make decisions about their own health care. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's about providing information in an accessible way and it really needs to be individualized yeah hey thanks Alicia what challenges may a speech and language pathologist experience when seeking consent or supporting a person to give consent when they're working with a person with complex communication needs well you might not be sure what the person's comprehension is, especially if it's an initial appointment and you're not sure if they understand all the information. You know, if you're wondering if they perhaps are just agreeing to be polite, perhaps. What I usually do in appointments is sometimes I ask the other people who are present, so if they're 
you know, if there's a support worker or a, a, a parent and ask who usually signs consent forms and agreements. And this is a way that I can confirm if there is a substitute decision making in place for signing legal documents. I also have developed some plain English documents that I keep with me, like a plain English service agreement and a plain English sort of appointment letter. And so that I can use these as they're applicable and appropriate for appointments that I can either obtain assent or dissent from the person directly as well to check, you know, if they're happy to engage with the service or speech pathology assessment or whatever it is that that appointment's for. Okay. And I just want to throw in there as well that SPA has a consent FAQ which our members can also kind of refer to as well when seeking information on this area. And in that FAQ, there's a supported decision-making pre that you can consult to see if there are any additional supports that might assist the individual while you're going through the process. And also, to, you know, just to also throw in there that supported decision-making takes time. And yes. We know that's a... A challenge for many of us in our working day you know these, these are not kind of quick easy things that we're, we're talking about here you know there's there's a process that you're going to be going through working with the individual like we've already highlighted all of the different things that you might need to consider and, and factor in when you're supporting someone so yeah because you might need to make up some some tools or some documentation or think about how you might be able to best support this person to understand and support them to make a decision. Yeah, sure. Okay, so finally, we just want to talk about in your, your paper, you point out and you explore how an enabling environment is an important factor when supporting a person with complex communication needs. Give us a few examples of what an enabling environment might look like. An enabling environment is often, I think, more about the people around the person with complex communication needs, so about the attitudes that exist, things like, you know, believing this person has rights and this person has opinions and a say in the way that they live their lives. And, you know, if AAC is something that's utilised, the way that the person learns a communication system, if it's a communication book or a speech generation device, is by seeing it modelled and used in functional real environments. So an enabling environment may also look like the person having opportunities to make decisions and then also receiving the support they need to make decisions as, as appropriate or required. It, is also about interactions in the community. So if an AAC user, you know, might be ordering their own coffee rather than someone else doing it on behalf of them and that they're encouraged to do that as well. Yeah, sure. And I, I think it makes me think back to the, the keynote speaker with Joe Watson at the last SPA National Conference. And she, you know, really stayed with me what she was talking about, how we don't make decisions kind of individually we we consult you know our loved ones or our community when we're making those decisions and we also you know people with complex communication needs need to be supported to, to do supported risk taking 
yes you know so that they can you know grow and learn from the from the decisions that they make you know that's that's natural that's how we operate as, as human beings yes um, yeah absolutely yes yeah Joey's so done much. some wonderful work in the supported decision making space it really has yeah okay so before we we wrap up we'll come on to talk a little bit about some resources for for where our listeners can go to if they want to get more information on this area but was there anything that you you wanted to kind of add or mention anything that we haven't covered on this topic I suppose in the in the article that that was that we submitted is it that really sometimes I think the agent of change for some people with complex communication needs can, can potentially be us in our role as a speech language pathologist and, you know, promoting their communication and perhaps also engaging in making more decisions in, in their daily lives as well and how we can go about supporting the network of people around those around the individual and how that might look and work and working with everybody who's involved. We've really got a key role in supporting people to access their human right to communicate. Yes, yeah. And you were mentioning as well about some new framework that's due to come out, Tip. Oh, yes, the NDIS are due to release a supported decision-making policy this year. So I'm excited for that to come out mm -hmm. so I can have a read. But, you know, it might be something good to keep your eye out for too. Sure, yeah. Thanks, Alicia. And just on that note of resources, we wanted to mention the Latrobe Support for Decision-Making Practice Framework, which is something that you, you shared that you consult useful. Yes, and they've got some really great modules and resources and freely downloadable things on their website, which can be really helpful if you are working in a in a space where you might benefit from using and sharing some resources with the support people as well. That's a really good one. Thanks. And the WA Individualized Services and the Developmental Disability WA as well. So Thank you so much, Alicia, for talking to us today, for sharing your paper with us and talking to us about the kind of the key principles within your paper. We are so excited to read it when it was published this July. Thank, um, you. And thank you for joining us on the podcast to tell us more about it and um, it was great to hear more about your work. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Kelly. That was really interesting. So we're just back to sum up a little bit and talk about some key take-home messages. Can you summarise some of that both from your chat with Alicia, but also more generally from the publication for us? Yeah, sure. So in our chat with Alicia, we discussed what supported decision-making is, some of the people you might need to consult with when you're assisting a person with for supported decision-making with complex communication needs, and a little bit about the role of the speech pathologist within this area. Alicia shared with us a tool called Ethical Mindfulness and explained how that might be helpful or useful when we're practicing clinically, 
and then we discuss the differences between consent, assent, and some of the challenges and enablers a clinician might want to consider when they're supporting clients to give consent. And you'll find all of the resources that we've chatted about in this interview in below in the show links. And you can read Alicia's paper in the forthcoming JCP SLP Special Ethics Edition, which is due out this July 2023, as well as reading about more information on ascent and elevating children's voices in our research in our featured researcher column. Working safely in research when working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. You can read more about why it's an ethical duty to be looking after ourselves and our own mental health to ensure we're maintaining professionalism when working with our clients. There's a case study exploring ethics and social media. You can read more from our consumer representatives on the ethics board about person-centered practice. And finally, you can read our student essay competition winner and read our top 10 tips for avoiding conflicts of interest. And so we hope this special ethics edition is a really practical and it's relevant to all of our members working across all fields of speech pathology and at all stages of their career. Brilliant. That sounds great. Well, thanks to Alicia for her time today and thanks for you to being here as well, Kelly. You're welcome, Nadia. Thanks for having Bye. me. Make sure you tune in next time for our conversation next week. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.